Welcome to Catholic Radio Indy's Lunchtime Podcast Sampler. I'm Kent Blanford. Each week, we'll bring you a sampling of some of the best Catholic podcasts being prepared and shared out there on the internet. This week, we do a cross-promotion with Catholic Radio Indy's Faith in Action. Our own Bridget Eyre and Jim Ganley had the opportunity to talk with Jose Gonzalez, host of the Christ in the Classroom podcast series from the Sophia Institute. You can hear that episode of Faith in Action this Friday at noon, Saturday at 12.30, or anytime by visiting catholicradioindy.org and searching our podcasts. This episode from the Christ in the Classroom podcast series features Mark Koschak discussing the reality of spiritual warfare. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Christ in the Classroom presented by Sophia Institute for Teachers. I'm your host, Jose Gonzalez. In today's episode, I uh, give the reins to a colleague of mine. Uh, I'm excited uh, for them to share some great insights with you. I'll go ahead and let them introduce themselves. All right, let's get started. So welcome to Christ in the Classroom. I'm your guest host for today. My name is Mark Kaschek. And today's topic is the reality of spiritual warfare. So hello to everyone joining us live and a future hello to anybody watching or listening later via podcast. Uh, so what I want to talk about today is what does spiritual warfare mean for us in our daily lives for the average Catholic? What relevance does it have and how can we actively fight against the snares of the devil and of demons? I want to essentially reconnect us to our duties as members of the church militant, because in a lot of ways, we've kind of lost touch with that reality as it relates to spiritual warfare. Uh, so as always, Heidi is joining us in the chat box. Thank you, Heidi. So if you have any questions throughout the presentation, uh, message Heidi there, and we'll see if we can take some time at the end for, for questions. I'll do my best to leave time for that. Uh, so we shall see. So I'd like to start with a prayer, and it's one that every Catholic uh, should know and use. So in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. So first things first. Since uh, this is one of the most common spiritual warfare prayers that we have, let's kind of pick it apart uh, from beginning to end. So defend us in battle. That makes three things clear. One, that there is a battle. This, this is a real battle. It's not metaphorical. Uh, two is that the attack is on us. We are engaged in that battle. And three, we need assistance. We're not asking for victory by our own power, but rather defense and assistance given our lack thereof, okay? Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. So snares suggests that the attack in a way requires our consent in order for it to succeed. You know, snares are things that we can either be attentive to and avoid or become distracted from and succumb to. Right? So then we can then assume that the protection against these attacks must be active and cannot be dormant. You know, we need to be vigilant. We need to be focused and aware of what the snares are so that we can avoid them. A little later, we'll talk about what active protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil looks like. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. Two terms to focus on here. 
God and humbly pray. So first, it's important to note God's power in rebuking Satan. We are recognizing here God's divine power and necessary assistance in order to not fall prey to the devil. So second, it's important to note that we do not order God or even St. Michael to do anything, but rather we pray humbly that it be done. Once again, this recognizes our position as ones being in need of grace and assistance. By the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all evil spirits. Again, it's important to note that it is only by the power of God that the prince of the heavenly host, St. Michael, is able to cast Satan into hell. It's not even by his own power alone that St. Michael does this. Also, it's important to note that it's not just Satan, but all evil spirits that we are humbly praying that this be done to. You know, the enemy is not only Satan, but those under his command. You know, he has an army too, right? And then the end of the prayer, who prowl about the world seeking the ruin of souls. So this last line is mainly what I want to talk about today. Again, there is a reality that the majority of the world, and indeed many Christians and even Catholics, either do not realize or perhaps even refuse to admit, namely that Satan, demons, and evil all exist, and they seek to ruin our souls. So this prayer is very useful. It's very important for our duties as members of the church militant. But aside from that, it does a very good job of painting the picture and laying out the reality that we're faced with on a daily basis. And if that's not convincing enough, let's take a quick look at a quote from one of our very favorite Catholics, Pope St. John Paul II, who said, the battle against the devil, which is the principal task of St. Michael the Archangel, is still being fought today because the devil is still alive and active in the world. We are in enemy-occupied territory. That what I, what I just said is, is not St. Paul, uh, St. John Paul II. We, I'm, I'm just saying we are in enemy-occupied territory constantly. Satan has been murdering since the fall. And as Pope St. John Paul II says here, he is still alive and active in the world. So let's take a closer look at what spiritual warfare means. You know, it can be defined as the battles we engage in to choose God's will over Satan's amidst the promptings of both the good and the evil spirit within us. So as that battle rages, we as beings with free will are presented with options. You know, sometimes the choice is more obvious than at other times. You know, do I skip work? Do I lie to my spouse? Do I murder or not, <laughs> right? Most of the time though, the battle is more subtle or intricate. And not only do the attacks have varying degrees of intensity on us, but our strength against them also varies. You know, sometimes we're hungry or tired or irritated, and it makes it easier to give in to these temptations. In most cases, whatever battle we're engaged in takes more strength and courage than it does, for instance, to make the choice to not murder someone. That's a relatively easy choice to make for most of us, I think. But these smaller choices are really important because it's all part of the same battle plan on both sides of this war, right? In the day-to-day -day temptations we face, God is still looking for us to choose his will. Ultimately, he wills our salvation, but we get there by way of saying yes to him on a lot of smaller things. You know, Satan's will is the destruction of God's work in our lives and ultimately the capture of our soul. And like I said, he's been doing this from the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. It was there that man faced its first bout of spiritual warfare when they were tempted to do something seemingly very simple, just take a bite out of a piece of fruit, right? But at the root of that temptation 
was Satan, who was seeking to undo God's work in the hearts of Adam and Eve. And they, of course, lost that battle. Uh, but spiritual warfare is also seen in the New Testament with Christ's temptation in the desert, which gives us a really good game plan to work with. And the game plan essentially is to reject the temptations of the evil one, recognize God as your ultimate strength and rely on him to see you through. So way to go, new Adam. This is also a really great reminder, by the way, that we are one day away from Lent for those watching live. And if you're listening in the future, we are in the thick of it now. So stay strong, but just keep on going and stay strong. So let's make a battle plan, right? So one of the first things, one of the first steps in making a battle plan is defining the enemy and defining their goal. So the enemy, of course, is the devil and his demons, the evil one, right? And their entire goal as the prayer to St. Michael tells us, is the ruin of souls. We also recall from the prayer that phrase, snares of the devil, meaning influences from the enemy that we can either accept or reject. So since we have the opportunity to, opportunity to reject them, the enemy has ways to make accepting them seem more desirable. So one of the most basic methods the enemy uses is to try and convince us that they're not real and that the battle doesn't exist. So there's this movie that came out about a decade ago called The Right, that's R-I-T-E, and it's about the right of exorcism. Anthony Hopkins plays this exorcist who has taken a young seminarian under his wing and the seminarian tags along with him on some sessions, but he's filled with this incredible doubt about the existence of the devil and the legitimacy of possession and of exorcism. And at one point, Anthony Hopkins character says to him, you want to be careful. Choosing not to believe in the devil won't protect you from him. Forgive my horrible Anthony Hopkins impression, but the, the, the point rings true. Choosing to not believe in the devil won't protect you from him. And at another point, he says in the movie, you know, does a thief or a burglar turn on the lights when he's robbing your house? No, he prefers you to believe that he's not there. Like the devil, he prefers you to believe that he doesn't exist. So be believing in the existence of the devil is actually a key step in resisting him. So if the target definitely believes that Satan exists, as all good Catholics should, then uh, the enemy has other methods of kind of uh, getting in. So they're incredibly crafty when it comes to suggesting that we deny God. And they're so crafty, in fact, that it can sometimes feel impossible to know where a stirring within us is coming from, whether from the enemy or from the Lord. So what allows the enemy to be so crafty and subtle and effective is that he truly knows us. Satan is no idiot and make no mistake, without the grace of God, he could absolutely obliterate us. He is powerful, deeply cunning, and he's smart. So he knows that the best way to break a chain and not in a good way, is to attack the weakest link. So whichever struggle is the greatest for us personally, there we will be attacked the hardest. So it's important that we remain especially vigilant in those areas. We also have concupiscence to deal with. Thanks a lot, old Adam, right? So concupiscence is of course a desire of the lower appetite, contrary to reason. Because of this, we're constantly at risk of attack. So it's not just our weakest links that we need to look out for. Spiritual warfare, calls for constant, constant vigilance. So we have to be aware of our openings, so to speak, and the places where we open ourselves up to demonic influence, to evil, 
And there are many that exist. And a lot of them are just plain popularized in modern culture. Not only sins like vanity, pride, gluttony, lust, and the like, but things like yoga. You know, believe it or not, yoga can be extremely dangerous. And it sounds a little odd to say that, you know, brightly lit rooms filled with quiet people on squishy mats, humming and stretching could be breeding grounds for the demonic, but it's because of yoga's spiritual roots that it truly is dangerous. While there's nothing inherently dangerous about the physical bodily arrangement of warrior one, yoga is much more than just stretches with physical health benefits. There are mantras and chants and a sort of polytheistic belief of oneness with everything and energies. And you begin to open yourself to all sorts of attacks heading down that path. So uh, there are even things like, you know, Ouija boards that are obviously very dangerous. Horoscopes are incredibly popular footholds. Tarot card readings, voodoo, astrology is a big one right now. These things are absolutely running rampant and are being touted as, you know, harmless personal choices or even games in some cases. But in reality, they're just footholds for the enemy. So some of the things we should absolutely avoid doing is speaking known names of demons. In the official practice of exorcism, attaining the name of a demon is a big, big part of what grants an exorcist control. And it is not something to be meddled with or taken lightly. Do not toy around with the names of demons. Uh, another thing is watching or listening to things that are indulgent of demons or the satanic, obviously something we should not be doing. There's a difference, for instance, between watching a movie like The Right and watching a movie like Paranormal Activity, where there really is no redeeming quality to it. It's just a secularized Hollywood spectacle of demonic possession for the sake of thrills and entertainment. You know, that's a foothold. You know, a good rule of thumb basically is if you're not sure, <laughs> err on the side of safety and pray. Uh, so, you know, at this point, you might be thinking, goodness, this guy is a real downer, <laughs> right? But the good news is um, that this battle has already been won on the cross, right? We have a lot of really, really powerful allies in this fight. Christ, for one, is a tremendous ally to us in this fight. God, the Holy Spirit, uh, we have only to rely on God to be victorious because he has won victory on the cross already. That's what spiritual warfare is all about, victory through Christ. Another ally of ours is Mary. It really cannot be overstated how strong Mary is in the arena of spiritual warfare. She is often depicted as the one who crushes the head of the serpent. And the devil is actually particularly afraid of Mary. And what he hates the most is the fact that, you know, what he hates the most about, you know, her crushing his head is, is the fact that she's God's humble little servant. You know, there's something especially humiliating to him about being utterly destroyed by someone as little and humble, as opposed to someone as grand and overtly powerful as God, right? Another ally of ours is St. Michael. I have this, uh, this statue of St. Michael here that usually sits behind me on my, on my bookcase. He's always walking over me uh, at work. Uh, the battle against Satan is St. Michael's principal task, as Pope St. John Paul II tells us in that quote we saw earlier. The prayer to St. Michael ought to be a daily practice for us. 
Another possibly lesser known ally is St. Joseph, Terror of Demons. This is one of the titles given in the Litany of St. Joseph as, one, as the one who is entrusted by God with the care of our top two allies against the enemy, Jesus and Mary. You can only imagine how terrifying St. Joseph truly is in the eyes of the enemy. So call on him as well. Uh, we, of course, also have all the saints and angels at our side, including our guardian angels, which are entrusted to us. We often end our prayers with all holy men and women, angels and saints pray for us with good reason. Uh, we also have each other as allies. We are the church militant, you know, the laity, priests, religious, etc. We're on the same battlefield, facing the same enemies, standing by the same allies, fighting the same good fight. So we are all fellow soldiers in the church militant. So what can we do? Right? We have our allies. What can we do? What are our stone walls? What is our ammunition? You know, it's good to know that so much has already been done. Like the cross, for example, is the death knell of the enemy. Look to the cross. If and when you lose courage, have faith in your victory through Christ. Uh, the sacraments, of course, grant us tremendous spiritual ammunition against the devil. Uh, chief of these is baptism, which in short, is when we vow to reject Satan, reject sin, and profess our membership to the church and to God. And when we are baptized, we join Christ's army. The Eucharist is obviously fantastic ammunition against the devil. To receive Christ himself so that you can all the more easily draw strength and receive grace from him in your battles. Reconciliation or confession is also crucial in spiritual warfare because it allows us to return to God after we've gone astray. You know, it frees us and heals us in the areas where we've been captured or injured by the enemy and allows us to re-enter the battlefield with renewed strength in those areas and new dedication to Christ. You know, beyond the sacraments, we can also build up our defenses and our ammunition in our personal lives, in our own homes. For instance, fonts of holy water in your home or even in your office, wherever you go, is an incredible defense. Not only is blessing yourself with holy water a reminder of our baptismal vows to reject Satan and sin, but the enemy absolutely despises holy water. He hates it. St. Teresa of Avila once said, I have found by experience that there is nothing from which the devils fly more quickly than from holy water. Pretty powerful stuff. So put it everywhere, in your home, in your office, on your face. Have a priest stop by your home and bless your house with holy water and chalk and holy salt. Get a scapular, have a priest bless that and wear it all the time. Buy some icons of your favorite saints and put them all around your house. I've got a St. Michael the Archangel icon hanging outside my office door 24-7. There's a lot we can do physically to aid us in battle. Of course, there are also tons of prayers we can, we can pray to assist us as well, right? So the, the obvious thing we can do is just general prayer to God, to ask for strength in our daily battles. He knows us. He knows our hearts. He knows our struggles. He knows our weak links. So he knows where we need that strength the most. Mass is obviously a great strength to us. So go as often as you can, receive the Eucharist. We can also ask the Blessed Virgin Mary, the other angels, the Archangels Gabriel and Raphael, and St. Joseph, Terror of Demons, like we said before, for assistance and to pray for us, to intercede for us. More specifically, we can call on our Blessed Mother to assist us through the Rosary. So the Rosary is one of your greatest weapons in spiritual warfare. It is probably 
as close as it gets to a, you know, get strong quick scheme in spiritual warfare. If you're looking for, you know, like a cheat code in this, this, this would be it. It'd be the rosary. So pray the rosary and offer it up for strength in your spiritual battles. There is no overstating how powerful this is. Uh, the prayer to St. Michael, the archangel, which we analyzed earlier on is obviously another prayer to use regularly. Uh, believe it or not, we can perform a minor exorcism or a lay exorcism, which it's important to note is not the same as what's called a major exorcism. So a major exorcism is via the official rite of exorcism, and it can only be performed by a Catholic priest with the express permission of a bishop. So we are really, really not allowed to do that. But as members of the laity, we can perform a minor exorcism, which basically just means a small prayer to you know defend against the snares of the devil, right? And it can be used to break that influence of evil and sin in a person's life. And this is actually something I do with my family, children included, every single Monday night. First, we gather in the living room and we pray the St. Michael prayer and we pray the Hail Mary. And then we walk around the whole house putting holy water on every single door, every single window while praying a minor exorcism prayer. So the minor exorcism prayer that we use goes like this. It's Lord Jesus Christ, through the intercession of the Immaculate Virgin Mary and St. Michael the Archangel, I humbly beseech you to command all demons and evil spirits to be gone from this place, that they may never return. Amen. So notice that in the prayer, we humbly beseech Jesus. We don't demand, and we ask for the intercession of our next two biggest allies, Mary and St. Michael. So pick up a, you know, lay exorcism prayer uh, with some holy water and, and do that with your family. Get a, get a crucifix specifically for that uh, and have a priest bless that, you know, really build up your defenses. We have so many tools at our disposal. We can also pray what's called the St. Michael chaplet. So the beads for these look similar to that of a rosary, but it's actually nine groups of one large bead and three smaller beads. So that's one Our Father and three Hail Marys. Uh, so each group of these is prayed for uh, or in honor of each of the nine choirs of angels. And let me tell you, the promises for the St. Michael Chaplet are phenomenal, including but not limited to an escort of an angel from each of the nine choirs chosen to, uh, to escort you the next time you go up to receive communion. So definitely look that up and start praying it. It is awesome. Uh, so all this goodness to share this battle plan, this wonderful way to do God's will and fight against the snares and the temptations of the devil. How do we bring this to our students? What can we do to raise awareness of this battle for our students and assist them in becoming, becoming stronger and more faithful soldiers of Christ uh, to help them to become saints? So a few things to keep in mind here. One, we want to make sure that what we bring to our students is age appropriate. So obviously you don't want to sit your second graders down and say, so demons are real and they want your soul. You know, <laughs> uh, my advice would be to focus more on the beautiful realities of spiritual warfare for our younger ones. For instance, how Christ protects us and how we have angels and saints as our allies and when we're having a hard time, we can call on them to, to help us out. Let them know about their guardian angels and how they can be called upon to help them. Focus their minds on the prayerful aspects of spiritual warfare. All of these things do reveal genuine truths about this battle without 
basically scaring the pants off of them, right? However, as our students get older, it's really crucial to ensure that they're prepared for battle, especially nowadays where the culture out there in the real world is just riddled with sins, especially sins of the flesh. We need to strengthen our students. You know, there's a stat that I recently saw that said our students are seeing something like 14,000 visual impressions a day. And you can only imagine that they are not all quite that holy. <laughs> so you can let your eighth graders know that demons are real. Let them know where the dangers lie. Give them the armor and the ammunition to fight the good fight. Ultimately, no matter what grade level or age level you're addressing with spiritual warfare, the bottom line is that we should not be afraid with God at our side and we can trust in his protection, right? That is the bottom line with our spiritual warfare. All right, so something we have been doing as we go through these series is to recommend a movie or a book or some music that relates to the subject. Now, I'm gonna recommend something in all three categories here. So the first is the movie. I will recommend The Right because I've talked about it a lot through this presentation. Again, that's R-I-T-E as in The Right of Exorcism. Watch it, it's great. It's got a bit of Hollywood thrill flavor to it because you know, money, but all in all, it's a great film. And it starts with that, Saint, that Pope St. John Paul II quote uh, that we mentioned earlier. That's the opening shot of the movie. So you know, it's legit, it's awesome. Uh, so definitely check that out. Uh, for the book, I will recommend Spiritual Warfare and the Discernment of Spirits by Dan Burke, which I have a copy of right here on my desk. I can hardly think of a more useful bit of reading on today's topic than this right here. Very, very brief synopsis. St. Ignatius of Loyola mapped out 14 rules to live by if you want to train yourself to listen for, detect, identify, and take action on the various stirrings within the good and the bad. Right, the good to accept them and the bad to reject them. So in this book, Dan Burke not only helps to break down and make sense of these 14 rules of St. Ignatius, but also offers connections with spiritual warfare and reflection questions to help us get better in battle, essentially. So just read it. It's awesome. It's fantastic. Uh, for music, I will recommend something by my favorite band, 21 Pilots. It's their self-titled album, 21 Pilots. It's a bit of a weird one. So you've been warned, but it's got everything, faith, struggle, the battle of good and evil, and even a ballad about how spiritual warfare helped the lead singer to better understand the crucifixion. So I think it's amazing. Maybe you will too. Maybe you'll be weirded out by it. Who knows? But that's my music recommendation for that. Thank you so much for joining me today. For more online resources developed, especially for Catholic school teachers, visit sophiainstituteforteachers.org. That's Sophia with a PH. And don't forget to visit the Christ in the Classroom webpage for today's free lesson. I'm Mark Kasjak with Sophia Institute for Teachers. Thank you and God bless. Thank you for participating in this week's episode of Christ in the Classroom. In order to request a professional development certificate, please visit sophiainstituteforteachers.org slash CITC certificates. In order to access the free lesson with today's theme, as well as show notes, please visit sophiainstituteforteachers.org slash CITC lessons. Thank you and God bless you. 
From the Sophia Institute, that was an episode of the Christ in the Classroom podcast series. This series is focused on Catholic educators and is a great resource for a number of topics. With schools starting up the fall sessions, I would highly recommend you check out sophiainstituteforteachers.org. You're listening to the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. We'll be back with more right after this. So, the scan button brought you here. Awesome. We like company. Get to know us. And if you have to leave, come back. You're always welcome. Catholic Radio Indy. Alexa, what's the weather forecast for today? Alexa, what time is the Colts game today? Alexa, remind me to pick up the dry cleaning tomorrow. Has Alexa become a part of your daily routine? Then make sure that routine includes Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. Quick, easy access to Catholic programming 24-7. Just say, Alexa, play Catholic Radio Indy. Catholic Radio Indy. In keeping with our Catholic education theme this week, our next offering on the sampler is from Catholic School Matters. On this podcast series, Dr. Tim Yule, the superintendent of Montana Catholic Schools, interviews thought leaders in Catholic education. This episode features Dr. Thomas Chadzuko, the superintendent of schools for the Diocese of Brooklyn, as he joins Dr. Yule to discuss the innovative academy model which reorganized parish schools in the Diocese of Brooklyn. Welcome to Catholic School Matters Podcast. This is your friendly host, Dr. Tim Yule, and got a fresh face on the podcast. Tom Jazuko from the Diocese of Brooklyn, superintendent since 2004. Tom, welcome to the big show. Thank you, Dr. Tim. Pleasure to be with you today. That's awesome. Uh, you're at home, huh? Remotely working? Uh, working from home today, yes. I'm in the studio. Can you tell? I can. I love the... Uh, it must be nice and quiet in there. I wish I was nice and quiet. It's very quiet, but I have a fan out there. She's like taking a picture from the communications office. I don't know. Um, we're here talking about, I know that you did a reorganization, um, use the academy model. And so we want to talk a little bit about parish and school governance and um, reorganizations that way. Are you up for it? You must be up for it. You came on. I'm, I'm ready. When did it when did it start in the diocese of Brooklyn? Uh, it started around 2008 uh, under the leadership of uh, Bishop Frank Caggiano, and it was at a time when the diocese was struggling with uh, finances in the schools. Uh, the uh, how we're going to continue to raise money for our schools, and what was the best way to engage lay leadership in the running of our schools, and. After a lot of research, a lot of time looking at what was happening across the country and Brooklyn being unique as a diocese, we felt that we needed to adopt something new but to make sure that leadership was involved in the running of our schools. Do you remember who you sort of modeled your program from, like what other dioceses or what we, other? We, we actually start, we started close to home. You know, we, we looked at uh, Philadelphia. We looked at what was happening in Boston. And, you know, we had gone out even to the, to the West Coast and, and did some work looking at San Francisco. And uh, really, 
and also down in Florida, looking to, to my old friends that were superintendents back then. And uh, we, we, took, we took a lot of the research that they've done. But the fact is that we wanted to make sure that we're current in everything that we did was the Catholic identity uh, was first and foremost, that academic excellence, uh, financial viability, and again, lay leadership in, in, the, in the running of our, uh, in the new structure as we will look into the future. Was this also was this also parishes, not just schools? Uh, it was no, it was just the schools. So okay. what we have in, here in New York is uh, very simply very basic history. Our parishes are uh, ran the elementary schools for for years uh, under the, the religious corporation law, and uh, what we've noticed in some places, a very generous pastors continue to this day, even in new governance. But the resources that were needed to keep our schools open, we, we were draining parishes. And we needed to figure a way of uh, keeping the, the footprint uh, in, in the community, but then also then how do we at least allow the academies to be standalones and to hopefully get some more grants and some financial stability. So that was one of the part of the vision that we looked at this in 2008. I like how you say that because – you don't start from a position of how can we get more money to our schools? You start from the position of how can we free some of these parishes from their um, the, the responsibility that's draining them and still provide new revenue streams to the schools, right? That's kind of the approach. Right. That's the approach that we took. And, uh, you know, I, I, be, you know, it's still a struggle to these days. You know, uh, we have had some some academy boards that have been able to find new sources of revenue in addition to the tuition. Um, they've come up with some great development ideas and some great grants, but we still have places that are struggling to to find those. And part of the work that we need to do now, I guess, 13, 14 years later, is how do we continue to look for new ways of funding uh, here in, in, in Brooklyn and Queens? So, like, let's look back at, like, 2008. How many elementary schools did you have at that time? I'm going to probably say we're at 69 now, about 135, maybe maybe 140. I mean, we, we've okay. lost, you know, that was coming off of the year. So, what started all this, the year before that, 35 schools had to close. You know, so a lot of, this, a lot of the academies – when we moved them into academies, we had to move them um, on a foundation of strength. But sadly, we've had to close a couple of academies as well. So, you know, our, our, we've lost about 1,000 students a year. So going back about 13,000 rough numbers. It, it's, it's, it's a yeah. huge number for us. So let's talk about what, is it, what does the academy mean? I mean, I, I had this sort of vision of like – you know, in a place like Brooklyn, you probably had some very dense uh, school, you know, so you might have had a St. Matthew, Mark, Luke and John all close to each other. The academy gets them all under one board and working together, not necessarily for separate buildings, but um, but gives them that same sort of commonality. Is that is that right or am I off? Yeah, that, that, that was one of the goals originally, but yeah. we also came to learn over the course of the years that you know some of the sizes of our buildings and you're correct in brooklyn you can look out one one window and see another church steeple a couple blocks away but what happened you know realistically was that 
we needed to we needed to strengthen the enrollment in, in one anchor school. And so as a result of that, there were some school closings around. Uh, we did experiment with a couple of times that we, we had two campuses of a building, uh, school, but economics did not allow us to run two buildings if the demographics kept shifting. So we, we basically fortified it into, into one building, grew the enrollment to, you know, in excess of three, 400 students, and then it allowed us to stabilize. Uh, and that was one of the things we were hoping to accomplish with this model is to bring stability. And, you know, we, you know, from a positive perspective, you know, we have been able to stabilize, but each year in the past five years, when we looked at our, our enrollment numbers, people are just leaving Brooklyn and Queens. We, we can't right. stop with last year was 60% moved, left our schools because they moved out of, out of two boroughs. Uh, this year, same thing when COVID hit, uh, we lost our families because of the nursery and preschool. So that's our, that's our, even with the governance model, that's still our constant struggle right now is, is keeping families from moving out of um, the two boroughs that we, that we oversee. Yeah. And I mean, it, people, we, we can't forget, I mean, it's th- that, they came out with a with a figure the other the other day, last week that said that the number of I mean the average size or whatever is half of what it was in 1960 for like the number of children that a woman has or the average number of births per a thousand whatever the figure is I, I'm not a statistician I just look and I'm like oh it's half what it was so it goes well that makes sense because families are generally half or less of what they used to be. And right. so there aren't as many, that's one of the demographics that's moving against you. And your boroughs, what's moving against you is that it's gentrifying, right? People are coming yeah. in there and there's less family homes. So it's more about, uh, you know, Brooklyn's a cool place to live, right? Or parts of it, I guess. I don't know. Yeah. Is it all cool? Is it all cool or just parts of it? You know what, uh, Tim? Uh, it's changed so much in my years. Going back to 2004, I mean, I, I've seen neighborhoods that were all poor African American Hispanic families, and we had strong schools there. And unfortunately, you know, not enough scholarship money. And now we're going to, we just reopened a school in Williamsburg, uh, reopened after years of being closed, and it's an early childhood center filled to capacity, bringing in a tuition of fifteen to eighteen thousand dollars a year for a preschool. So, you know, we still have some buildings that are vacant, but, you know, Brooklyn especially uh, has changed dramatically in the years that I've been, we, we, I've been at this. Yeah. Okay. So the academy model, uh, is it built around a board of limited jurisdiction? No, actually, you know, uh, and that's the difference when you talk, when you ask the question, you know, where do we model after? Because you have boards of specified jurisdiction, boards of limited jurisdiction, uh, what we've done in Brooklyn is we've uh, modeled it after a two-tier board. So yeah. we have a board, board of members and a board of trustees. Um, and the bylaws that we've worked over since 2008 have changed. The day-to-day running of the school is housed with the board of trustees. Uh, the pastors are the members. They have limited responsibilities. Uh, and, but most of their work is pastoral. Uh, so involved in, you know, religion. We just had a meeting prior to this, and that's their that's their prime focus. And 
school's office was represented by the vicar for education, the chancellor, and myself. So we just approved the board. We approved the hiring of a principal, strategic planning, financial. But the trustees, or back in 2008, was the board of directors. They did their day-to-day running of the schools. Uh, and still, they do that today. We tweaked the bylaws a little bit the past two years because through this evolution of the boards, some of our pastors felt that they'd been left out and not knowing what was going on. So the host pastor of each of the academies is is is, is invited to come to the board meetings uh, to hear what's going on. So something we did to make for a, a mistake, and may, we made some, many mistakes during this process, but they now sit and they have a vote at the, at the board. So it's it's helped rebuild that uh, trust between parish and school and community. Because that's always the, the, the concern is that once a school separates or decouples from a parish, the parish is not going to be interested in supporting them and there's not going to be that relationship, right? I mean, even if they're yeah. on the same campus, you know? Yeah, I mean, th- this year uh, in COVID, um, We've launched a number of initiatives to bring that community back together with a parish. And we've actually had a number of pastors step forward uh, in our year of renewal. We just dedicated this year a year of renewal for Catholic education, where they've become re-engaged through setting up scholarships, recruiting for us. So it's had a positive step in the right direction, even though the governance still remains the same. And is every parish, is every elementary school in the Diocese of Brooklyn in an academy now? No, we still have five that are not academies. Okay. And what happened was that that was a result of COVID hitting us last year. So we've put all that, because pro- it is a process. We have to go into the buildings. We have to do a lot of in-person uh, preparation. So the, the remaining schools probably, if we come out of COVID the way Things are looking in New York that we probably would move those schools all to the academy governance model by the end of uh, 2022. And the the successful academies have, have been able to find alternative uh, methods of funding. W- what are those alternative streams? Uh, we, we've gotten we've seen a lot more infusion of grant money because okay. uh, in, in the old structure. Some of the grantors would feel that if they were giving money with, because it was going to the church, right. they, they wanted to make sure. Uh, we've also been successful, you know, with some foundations, uh, especially the, you know, the non-Catholic foundations that support uh, you know, private schools. So we've been able to do that. And then obviously uh, we would hope that the, the government would give us more monies. But at that point, that's a story for another day, another podcast. That's right. That's right. All right. School choice. Uh, did you listen to the podcast, Nice White Parents, by the way? No, I didn't. I think that was Brooklyn, right? I think it was set in Brooklyn. When uh, was those, that? It's serial people. They came out this uh, last fall, I think. Um, oh. Talked about the neighborhood and and the, the influence that pa- parents have. Um, anything else we need to add? Uh, I mean, I, I think something you just said, you know, parental engagement, I mean, that, that's essential to the success of whether it's a uh, parish school or, or an academy. And, and that's, you know, in, in this time of COVID, we've seen more, fa- more parents get involved in the schools. And, and that's, again, in the model. I mean, 13, 14 years after the model, 
you know, parents still have to be stakeholders. Parents still have to be encouraged to be involved. And I think that's something else that we really would want to see going into the future. You know, I, I think, you know, as, as we know in Brooklyn, the, this was the vision, still is the vision, vision of our bishop, Bishop DiMarzio. Um, we're tweaking it as we get prepared for a new, a new ordinary coming in. Uh, but it, it is a model that's sustainable. Uh, you know, it, it has brought stability from a positive perspective. You know, in this time of COVID, our enrollment, it looks like we'll be up next year. Uh, our goal is to increase enrollment by uh, a thousand new students. Uh, our donors are really much more involved in supporting us. So these are some of the things that we would hope that this governance will continue to uh, promote in the future as we go into 21-22 academic year. Did you notice that um, some priests may have supported this and some didn't support it? I think people oftentimes talk about the priests, but did you notice that some parents um, may have supported it and some parents didn't like the new model? I, I think having gone through the parent presentation, so when we, when, when we transitioned the school into an academy, we did parent meetings. And it was really a convincing story to say that, you know, how the governance was going to change, how they would be involved. Their big concern was always, will, will we have the same teachers? Will we have the same principal? Right. You know, will the uniform change? That was the million-dollar question. Um, and, you know, we, we really had to ensure them that educationally, if it was a good product that would continue, that the teachers would be there. Uh, but, you know, we've we've now made sure that the schools do a state of the academy presentation to the parents that they are involved. So uh, there was skepticism. But I think, you know, as we move forward, we've learned a lot since 2008 in doing this. I noticed something in Montana um, when when we would talk in terms of building up the capacity of the boards and perhaps moving away from pastor as CEO, you would expect and you would get some pushback from some pastors who like to sort of be in charge and be the decision maker. But you'd also hear parents say, oh, I like it when father was in charge. And and I don't think it's a theological thing. I think it's easier just to have one person to blame for things as opposed to taking responsibility and joining in. And it, they'd rather be like, well, that's what father does. That's what father did it again, instead of like taking the heat of being on the board and having to represent a decision. I don't know. I That could be just a Montana thing. I don't know if you've ever no, seen I, that. I think, it, I think it is because they ran over to the rectory or they grabbed the pastor or priest after mass if they went to mass or they knew where the priest lived. You know, with, with yeah. our board, this was this has been something we've been saying to the boards. You know, Bishop Frank used to say this all the time. A board can't be this mystical person that no one knows about or under a bushel basket. That was the phrase that he would use often. And I remember seeing at those meetings. And, you know, we still have that problem. You have a group that's barking orders or making changes. And that's why we had said you need to do the state of the academy. We want to know that you're talking to your parents. That they're there to listen to you. And actually, in, in many ways, and this is this is probably also a good sign, the pastors could be a listening ear and say, you know, I hear your concerns. I'll bring it back to the principal. And, and that's a lot of times where we have a pastor walking across the yard and saying to the principal, you know, so and so came to me. And we always make sure the principals say to the, tell, you know, so to the, we always say to the principals, make sure you tell your pastors if there's something serious going on in the academy. You don't want them blindsided at Saturday mass or Sunday mass. Sure. Yeah. And that's helped a lot. 
All right, Tom. Well, that's a great overview. Um, and that's what I was looking for, that academy model. Once upon a time, you um, or someone from your staff was very helpful to me. It was about six years ago. Could have been Anthony Bisconi. Did he work for you, Anthony? Yeah, he left. He went to Rockville Center. Now he's in the Arch. Oh, he is? Yeah. He's a good guy. He, uh, I think he might have been the person. He sent me your manual. Um, and in typical New York fashion, it was like 7,500 pages long. Um, yeah. And it was like, here, here's a model you can use as a template. And I'm like, this thing's a book. I can't use this. It's too long. We use it as doorstops. Yeah, Anthony Anthony was actually overseeing the governance uh, when yeah. he was deputy superintendent. Yeah. So yeah. Uh, no, you were very you were very helpful to us at that time, and that was a helped me conceptualize. But that's what I want to help people understand is this this academy model. It's it's built on, as you said, faith um, the the lay collaboration, uh, getting lay people uh, freeing up the parishes, but faith formation. Was there a fourth pillar of that that you said? Uh, Catholic identity, academic yeah. excellence, financial stability, and, and, and communities, building community. That's great. Yeah, I walked down to the studio. I forgot to bring a pad of paper, so I'm, I'm working without notes. This is me without notes. Tom, uh, great. Great, great, great. great. Um, great and we'll see you again great. soon, okay? Thank you. Anything you need, Tim, just reach out to Jeanette or myself. You're listening to Catholic Radio Indy, converting the culture to Christ through radio, featuring 100% Catholic programming 24-7. Do your friends a favor. Tell them about Catholic Radio Indy. Often when confronted with the apostles' claim that Jesus rose from the dead, people ask if they made it up, and it's a reasonable question. So, did they? I don't think so, and here are a few reasons why. First, the early Christians had nothing to gain and everything to lose in lying about Jesus' resurrection, which makes their testimony credible. As Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 15, the only outcome for him lying is persecution and death. How does that serve as motivation for a lie? Second, the Gospel writers include women as the first witnesses. This is a big no-no if you're trying to fabricate a story in first century Judaism. According to the first century Jewish historian Josephus, the testimony of women wasn't considered reliable at the time. So, there's one thing we can be certain of. The apostles weren't lying about Jesus' resurrection. I'm Carlo Brusord with a ready reason for Catholic Answers. Catholic.com And where do we find the basis of all Catholic education? In the Catechism. From 3-Minute Theology, this is Joan Watson. A few weeks ago, a viewer of 3-Minute Theology asked me an important question. They asked me, what is the catechism and what role does it play in our lives? Now this is important because I quote the catechism a lot on here. You may see it referenced as CCC, the Catechism of the Catholic Church. And what is this book? What role does it play in our lives as Catholics? Well, the Roman Catechism, the universal catechism that I quote, gives us a definition of itself. In Catechism paragraph 11, it says that it presents an organic synthesis of the essential 
and fundamental contents of Catholic doctrine. So what does this mean? Basically, what the Catechism does, it presents us with the teaching of the Church in an organic way, in a natural way, and in a way that we can use it to, to look up answers, to teach, to understand better Church teaching. The Catechism is an indispensable tool for us to know more about the Scriptures. If you think about it, you might wonder, why do I need the Catechism when I have the Word of God in sacred Scripture? Well, remember, everything we know isn't clearly laid out in sacred scripture. For example, the Trinity. You don't find the word Trinity in sacred scripture. What the Catechism does is it gathers thousands of years of church teaching, of prayer, of the liturgy of the church, of the writings of the saints, of the writings of the church fathers, those earliest theologians and bishops. It gathers all of this as almost a meditation on the Word of God. The Word of God is greater than just what we find in Scripture. Remember, ultimately, the Word of God is Christ Himself. And so the Catechism doesn't replace sacred Scripture for us. The Catechism helps explain sacred Scripture. It helps us know better this Word of God. Even St. Peter, in his letters, points out that St. Paul sometimes is hard to understand. If St. Peter found him hard to understand, we find him hard to understand at times, too. And so what the Catechism does for us is it compiles, again, thousands of years of church teaching, thousands of years of prayer and meditation and research and study done under the grace of the Holy Spirit so that we can know more about Christ himself. The Catechism reminds us that the goal of all this, of study, of, of this work of, of theology, isn't just to be done for its own sake. But the, role of, the, the purpose of all of this is for love. The Catechism says the whole concern of doctrine and its teaching must be directed to the love that never ends. That's the beauty of the Catechism, is it helps us fall more deeply in love with Christ himself because we learn about him and you can only love what you know. And that's a little theology in three minutes. And that wraps up this episode of the Lunchtime Podcast Sampler on Catholic Radio Indy. You can find this podcast at catholicradioindy.org. I'm Kent Blanford, and until next time, thanks for listening, and God bless. You can hear the Holy Mass every day at 8 a.m. right here on Catholic Radio Indy. Did you miss something in this show or just want to hear it again? Podcasts of this and all our other great local programs are available 24-7 at catholicradioindy.org.